First Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 6 through 9 this morning. I'm going to read those verses. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though for now a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As I've mentioned in past weeks, Paul is is speaking to a group of believers who, because of persecution at the hands of the Jews in Jerusalem, they have been dispossessed of their homes, of their lands, and people that they love who have followed Christ were taken from them. They were jailed, they were beaten, they were insulted publicly, and they were even killed. <clears throat> and with more and more persecution just around the corner at the hands of Emperor Nero from Rome, Peter's writing to these Christians to reassure them of truth in the midst of suffering in the midst of trials. And in verse 1 and 2, he begins to encourage them by putting their eyes on things that are actually out of their control. Trials are out of their control, but also there are certain things that God has done on their behalf that are unchangeable. And these are the things that he is uh, having them direct their hearts and their minds to and to focus on while everything around them is changing. What is not changing, what is going to transcend everything that is going on. And so he does in verse 1 and 2, he says, hey, you were chosen by God. You were chosen by God. You've been rejected by the world, and it's obvious, but you've been chosen by God. The world also is at war with you. You don't have peace with the world. They've declared war on you. There's hostility between you and the world, and that's because you're his. And by the way, you have grace and peace in abundance with God. He lets them know that God chose them. He lets them know that even though they're going through difficult circumstances, they have war with everyone else around them. They have peace with God, and they have grace from it. And it's not just like kind of peace and kind of grace, it is abundance. And that is what we need to know in the middle of our trials, that God has called us, and God is actually not at war with us. We are at peace with God. Well, how in the world did that happen? Because of His great mercy, and then He goes into praising God, and He gives Him seven reasons to praise God in the midst of suffering. And those are verses 3 through 5. God's great mercy upon them, the new birth, the living hope, the resurrection, an inheritance that never will spoil or fade or be corrupted, being shielded by God's power and a great salvation that is coming. All these things Peter is, is, is putting in the very front of his letter 
So he puts their suffering in the context of the truth and the reality of the salvation of God, the great salvation that God has given them. And all these are in Peter's mind. They're great reasons for them to praise God and rejoice in the middle of their trials, in the midst of their trials, because they're secure in Christ. And so in light of all this, Peter has said in the first few verses, he says to them in verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice. Though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, Peter hasn't mentioned their suffering up to this point. He just gave them a big, giant dose of truth. And now he does recognize their current circumstances, and he calls them, he identifies their current circumstances as trials. When we think of a, like a courtroom trial, we know that its purpose is to get to the truth of a matter, supposedly, right? And so evidence and witnesses are brought forward, uh, and all these things are, are, are being brought forward, uh, and, and basically, it's, all this is happening to either confirm or discredit whatever claim is being made. And based upon these tests, based upon the evidence, based upon the witnesses, the truth of the matter is supposed to be revealed in a trial. That's theoretical, of course, right? But trials we face as Christians, they aren't, they aren't confined to a courtroom. They aren't confined like that. They are, they are part of our everyday life. They're ingrained in everything we do, in every circumstances. And trials in life, in the life of a believer, are how God proves out your faith, how He proves your faith. Not to Him. He's not lacking any information on your faith. Who's lacking information? I am. And so trials are God's mechanism to show you where you truly are, where your faith is, and to refine it. Trials are a fact of our lives of following Jesus on this side of eternity. Everybody knows when Jesus said in John 16, 33, and this is a memory verse for those of you, you can underline this one as a promise of Jesus. He says, in this life you will have trouble. How many of you have that one underlined? <laughs> oh, this is my life's verse. In, it is a life's verse. In this life you will have trouble. Underline that one, put it on your fridge, and just look at it and go, Yep. And there's context to that, right? But I have overcome the world, Jesus says. The persecution, the grief, and the suffering that these Christians were suffering was not a surprise to God, nor was it to Peter. It was expected. The same with our trials. God isn't going, oh, no. Look what's happening to them. That's out of control. Now, notice Peter says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. When we think of trials, do you, do you think of joy and trials in the same sentence? I don't. I think of pain and suffering and inconvenience, and I just want to get out of it. Anybody else? Yes. But he says, all this you greatly rejoice. And so Peter knows something that we often don't or might not know yet or know in our mind but not maybe know in practice, that believer has a cause for joy in the midst of resulting even as a result of the trials that they are going through. 
And Peter says, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. And in this refers to everything he just said. In other words, what sustains us in trials is truth. What sustains us in trials is the fact that God has chosen us, that he has been sanctifying us by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, that he has, we have grace and peace with God that cannot be taken away, that we have a new birth, we have a living hope, we have a risen Savior seated at the right hand of everything that's going on. Nothing's out of his control. That we have an inheritance, although things are taken away around us, although those hardships and relationships are lost, there are things in heaven that are eternal, that are unshakable, immovable, under guard. They cannot be removed, including you, your salvation. And so Peter's just saying, in all this, you've got, you greatly rejoice. In other words, the waves are crashing and things are being thrown around and you're left and right, but things are immovable in the kingdom of which you are eternally a part of. And that's a cause for joy. And it's interesting, the truth is a reason for joy, but the trials actually produce joy within us. And I'm going to get to that. And so all these immovable and unshakable and eternal realities that we have in Christ, they supersede and they transcend any trial that we may be in. And if that's the case, then the believer whose faith is resting in those truths, and even in the most difficult circumstances, has joy. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is transcendent. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So God allows believers to experience trials. And if you notice there in verse 4, you probably didn't because I'm a weirdo, but verse 4 gives us four aspects of the trials that God allows us to experience for the proving of our faith. There's four things that Peter talks about by the the nature and the character of trials. And Peter says there, first of all, in verse 4, he says they're for a little while. Did you notice that? In verse uh, 6, I think, is it? Sorry. For a little while. They're for a little while. This means that they're temporary. They're they're transient. They aren't going to last forever. Know that about the trial you're in right now. It's not forever. It has an end date. That end date might be when you give up your last breath. Or it might be tomorrow. But it has an end date. Isn't that good to know? So Peter is looking at these people and saying, listen, it's just for a little while. It's just for a little while. I think that's important to know. It doesn't feel like it, does it? It's like you know, watching certain trials on TV. Will this ever end? Going through personal trials in your own life, will this ever end? Will the suffering ever stop? It seems to only be getting worse. What's going on with that? There's an end date. In Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, David wrote, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Anyone ever been there? Why can't this stop? When will this end? It's just a little while. When we're in a prolonged trial, it can seem like it will never end, but that's not true. That's not truth. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17, which I'm going to reference a lot, he calls the trials momentary and light afflictions. Momentary and light. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you have been shipwrecked lately? How many of you have been stoned and beaten and imprisoned? Uh, all the things that whipped in your back and all that stuff for Christ. And, and Paul says, light and momentary. Hanging in a, in a dark, deep prison with no hope of escape in all those conditions. Everybody betrays him. Left alone with very few people by his side. And he calls all these things light and momentary. What perspective does he have that we don't? If Paul is calling those light and momentary, what are our trials? Light and momentary. They're for a time. Peter also says in verse 6 that trials are given when necessary. Some of you say, if, if necessary. They're given when necessary. That is, the trials we face are not meaningless. I don't know about you, but when I look at the trials I go through, I'm like, this is pointless junk. This is getting in the way of what I want to do. Anybody else, this is unnecessary. Yeah, I think, I think we would all agree. No, they're given when necessary. He says, if necessary. He says, it doesn't mean it's always going to be happening, but when it happens, it is not an accident. It's necessary. They serve a purpose in the believer's life. The trials that you are going through or will go through and have gone through, they serve a, a purpose in your life. It's important to know when you are suffering and when you're going through a trial, when there's great discomfort and distress in your life, that there's a purpose. God is using it. Now, the problem is that when, when you're in a trial, we don't have clarity. We don't understand why, and we don't understand the reason. We don't understand the specifics. How many of you went to God class and got your quadruple PhD in God? You're not God. You don't understand the big picture. But God is at work. Make no mistake. Trials are necessary in proving our faith. They're given at specific times for specific purposes. I remember when I was younger. <laughs> I can still remember when I was younger. But in December of 1998, a little over after a year being on staff as a young worship leader at uh, Calvary Chapel, I began to experience a headache that, that would not go away. And um, this really impacted me in, in a significant way. Uh, the Lord had delivered me out of a, a life of sin and, and out of all those things, and here I was serving the Lord. He had done amazing things in my life, and um, out of the blue, in the midst of all this, of a life devoted to serving God, I, I had this headache that began to develop, and it did not go away. And this is a trial that I did not want. I did not ask for it. And as this headache became increasingly 
um, debilitating. It began to impact my life in ways that I did not want to have impact my life. Any of you have just physical things that are going on, perhaps a relationship that's doing this, financial, emotional. They just come into your life at times when you, when you don't want them to do that, and they have impacts on you that are just really uncomfortable, and you don't really want them to hang around. And so socializing became increasingly difficult for me. Any of you who have chronic headaches, you don't necessarily want to be talking to people because you can't concentrate and light bugs you and other things. There's different ways. And so socializing became difficult. And so guess what became the norm? Isolation. Isolation becomes norm. And I began to wonder in this why the Jesus of the Bible who healed people would not heal me. That's a legitimate question, especially coming from the background where I was. If I look at Jesus and people, he just went and healed people and he did all that stuff, why aren't you taking it away? What's going on? And I began to question God. I began to doubt. Now, some of you are sitting there and going, well, you have a wrong view of God. Well, I'm 20. I just came to the Lord. I haven't been walking, you know, as, as you all who have been through what? Trials. And so, why isn't God healing me? And I began to go through the Psalms, and I underlined every healing verse there ever was. I began to question my salvation. Am I saved? I began to doubt. Anybody else gone through those things? I was afraid I was going to die. That's what was going through my head in my, in my early 20s. I had my first, I went to, you know, the, through the medical route. I, I, I had my first MRI in my brain, which came out normal. And so there's no answers there. Then after tests and seeing specialists and all that kind of stuff, the doctors just said they didn't know. They didn't have any answers. They didn't know what was going on. They tried to do what they could do. With the exception of a neurologist who I went to who diagnosed me with chronic daily headache, and I said, yes, that's why I came to see you. <coughs> Thank you. Anyone else been there? And then people, good-hearted, suggested all kinds of reasons and remedies, and there were no answers, and maybe I didn't walk down roads I should have, and all that stuff, but there were no answers. And when I was really having a hard time, when I was really struggling, and I'm on staff, and the, and the staff of the church is kind of going, are you okay, and all this type of stuff, um, there was a doctor in the church, and he came in and sat me down. He said, listen, everything you've gone through, everything that you're doing, it says medically you're fine. It's all in your head. Those are the words. And it wasn't meant to be mean, but it's in your head. That is what everything is leading to. It's all in your head. Now, from my perspective at the time, I couldn't understand why God would save me, and then, as I'm following Him, why He would let me go into the suffering like this. No, that's what you're supposed to do when you're bad. And by the way, He does that. He disciplines us in our sin. We know that from Hebrews, like a good father, right? But fast forward to today. The headache isn't gone. It's not gone. It's still there. And the latest MRI of my brain was labeled insignificant. <laughs> and that's something went from normal to insignificant in 20 years, and so I, there, that tells me something. 
But what's the point? What's the point? Why? When everybody else can get up and fellowship and hang out and, and, and everybody can, has all this energy and, and all this ability and all these things, you know, and you just look at it and go, oh my gosh. Paul says in Romans 5, speaking of how we are to not only to glory in the hope of glory, but also in our sufferings. Talk about glorying in our sufferings. Why? Paul says, not only so do we glory in our, we also glory in, our, in the glory to come, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. Suffering produces something. And let me say that God knows how to produce something in his children. You ever notice that some people don't necessarily need all the trials? And some people, I think my life's verse is, don't be a donkey that needs a bit and a bridle. Stubborn. Any of you who have kids know that they're different, and different things develop their character. Sometimes God uses suffering and pain and trials to develop perseverance, and perseverance, character, something we don't care about too much sometimes, you know? And character produces hope. There's a pattern there. I needed this trial because it was through suffering that I began to develop perseverance, in Christ, in the Lord. I didn't stop trusting Him, even though times got difficult. I actually, through the trial, it caused me even more to seek Him and focus Him in a way that maybe others wouldn't, maybe that I wouldn't have if I had not been in that circumstance. Because all the other joys and all the other things of life, they were kind of all weighed down, and the only solution was up. It was him. Like Jesus said to Peter, are you guys all going to leave me now? And what did Peter say? Where else do we go? For you alone have the words of life. And so God began to change me as I began to seek and ask him, not because I necessarily wanted to, but because I was forced to. Anyone else? And as I began to ask God because of trial in my life, he began to work on my character, and he's still working on my character, and I began to have and believe God over the circumstances in my life. Because what other options are there? And I knew that God was with me and that there was a purpose in suffering as he developed that character in my life and there became hope. And I knew that my purpose in suffering, it was to trust less in Matt and more in God. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. We are so prideful, so thoroughly prideful, so self-reliant. We are so, it's so integrated within us. It takes dynamite to, to blow that thing up. 
but their control blows. Out of control to you, but absolutely in control of the hand of, of the maker. And it gives you hope. And the perseverance that he gave me can be summed up in Hebrews eleven twelve, in which you can relate with, which he's speaking about Abraham being old and unable to have a child with Sarah. See, God said, hey, listen, you're going to have a child with, with Sarah, your wife, and yet she couldn't have kids, and now they're really old. And, and I don't know about you, but being 190, it just is not going to happen. Right? And here are the verses in Hebrews 11 and 12. It says, And by faith, even Sarah, who is past childbearing age, emphasis on past, was enabled to bear children because she considered what? Him faithful who has made the promise. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as what? Dead came the descendants, as numerous as the stars of the sky and as countless as the sands of the seashore. It wasn't in his strength and youthfulness that God was choosing to work. It was when he was incapable, when he could no longer depend on his flesh, but could only trust in the promise of God that God decided to move and work. Message two the older folks. Message to the younger folks. It was necessary for Abraham to suffer all those years until he was good as dead. Until nothing that he could do, nothing that he could perform, nothing that he could actually accomplish would be the reason. It all got stripped away. And he just had to trust in the promise, in what God said. How does that process happen? Does that just magically appear? Is that just going on in your life? No. It, it happens through trials. That's the mechanism that God uses to refine that. Not fun, huh? And that's why the third thing is they cause us suffering to suffer grief or distress, some of your translations say. Trials are distressing. Trials are painful, pain and simple, right? This is not only talking about physical pain, but mental anguish, sadness, sorrow, disappointment, anxiety, all those things. Paul is, who is totally familiar, we just keep going back to Paul here, with, with all of these things, wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises what? The dead. God allows trials that are distressing in our life. Psalmist wrote in Psalm 
1971, he says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. This is after the fact, looking back, he goes, the suffering, the affliction, the, the pain that happened, it was what? It was good because it produced something in me that wouldn't have been there had it not been there. Trials are temporary. They are given when necessary. They are distressing. And lastly, it says, trials God allows are various, Peter says in verse 6. They're various, various trials. Your trial isn't my, my trial. My trial isn't your trial. The word various means many-colored. Peter, later in chapter 4, verse 10, uses this word to describe how the grace of God is manifested in the gifts of, of the body. He says, in its various forms, in its many-colored forms, in its many ways. My daughter has uh, had like colored pencils or markers. What was it? I can't remember. Like She just had like a, a box of like 100 or something like that. And you just look at him, you go, I never knew there was, was that color. You never used to watch Bob Ross growing up or, you know, just in your free time? Guy with the fro, white guy, used to, look at happy trees, totally. I'm like, yellow ochre, that just opened my world. There's a yellow ochre out there. What is that? You know? And you're just going, sappy green. Well, all those colors and all those mixtures are just like the 31 flavors of pain and suffering that we get to experience. That's the kind of trials. I, I, here we are, happy church again, right? <laughs> but that's, that's the flavor of suffering that we enter into. They're various. But by the way, so is His grace. His grace in His various forms. I think that's just encouraging. Remember Paul? He said three times what? Get me out of this, get me out of this, get me out of this. Take it away, take it away, take it away. And God returned three times and He said what? My grace is sufficient in your suffering, Paul. Just as your trial is, is, is various, so is my grace in the midst of it. And so trials are for a time. They're only given when necessary. They're distressing. They're various. And so right now, think about the trial you're going through. You need to know that it's for a time. It's necessary. It's distressing. And it is painful. But what is the purpose why would God allow you to go through this? Why would God allow you to suffer? This seems like forever. It hurts. I just want it to go away. What is the purpose? Have any of you thought that? Have any of you prayed that recently? Get me out of this. And I think it's okay to pray, get me out of this. But not at the expense of, Lord, do what you want to do. Teach me, show me. Verse 7, why, why, why trials? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He, he, he says a line, then he adds a bunch of stuff, and then he says a line that connect the first two. And so he's basing, the God, God has the purpose of trials in the believer's life. It's to prove the genuineness of your faith so that it may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's what he's saying. You're going, well, that's a bummer. You obviously, like I, have been blinded at times 
to what is truly important, to where we are all headed, the reality that's coming. And he's saying, this is so important. This is so important. God has the purpose of trials in our lives so that our faith is proven. And when we see Jesus, it will result in him giving us praise, glory, and honor. And there's a lot in there. Again, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, 4 through 16. says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory, eternal that, uh, that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what we see is, uh, is unseen is eternal. And so the pain and the suffering, it can't compare what is, for what is coming. God is refining your faith, and your faith results in an eternal weight of glory. We don't even think of what you would have if you could hit that Powerball thingy that's out there. You go, oh, the weight of all that stuff that's going to burn. But guess what? The eternal weight of glory when you see Christ is going to outweigh Powerball. Bad analogy, but you know I'm the master of illustrations. So so whatever it takes now is what God is doing. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Peter later says in chapter 4, verse 12, says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Suffer now, glory then. Peter likens the process of refining your faith through trials to that of the process of which what gold goes through to be refined, right? Gold is considered one of our most precious metals. How many of you like, like have gold? It's precious, it's precious, right? We don't just kind of like treat it like tin foil or aluminum foil or whatever it is. We don't, it's, 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 it's highly valued. Well, it doesn't get that way by itself. You ever seen like one of those gold digger miner shows? You know, they go out there and they go, oh, and they find this big, you know, chunk of gold. Like, Look at this nugget. And they're worshiping this thing that's like this big. Anybody seen that? And they take it and they put it and they weigh it on the scale. And they're like, Look at that thing. And you're like, Oh my gosh. And then there's a problem because that's not all gold. It's got a bunch of other stuff attached to it, but they see the value in it. So what do they have to do? They have to take it, and they put it under heat with a bunch of other gold, right, and all that stuff. They take all the flakes, and they put it in a big giant thing, and, and they put incredible heat on it. And as that incredible heat is put on that, those, the, you know, the gold and all that stuff, it melts the gold. It liquefies it. And as it liquefies it, the weight of the gold goes down, and all the other stuff that is not gold, it goes up. And so what do they do? You have to separate the impurities, and so they scrape off the top, or they've got a process for that. Thanksgiving is coming up. Who's making gravy? Like real gravy. Instant gravy. Ah, uh, don't you do that. <laughs> shortcuts. There is no shortcut. No. But you know what I'm saying, right? You, you have all the things there together, and then you've got to separate the fat from whatever. Uh, do we keep the fat, or do you throw away the fat? 
Oh, we're going to find out who re- where people really are on this. We keep a little bit because we want to taste good, right? But the idea is they have a separator, and you can see the different parts of it, and you pour away certain parts, and you keep certain parts, and that's the idea is the refining process of gold. And he's saying that gold, when it's refined, is, is precious, and, and the more it's refined, the more pure it is, and that's how you get 24-karat gold. And pure gold, you can't even make jewelry out of it because it's too soft. You have to have other things in it. But God wants pure gold. And by the way, what is the asphalt of the kingdom of God going to be? Gold. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. So I don't want to undermine the new gold. But I'm just saying, that. what does he say about your faith? It is much more what? Precious than gold. And he says, what about gold and gravy and all those things? They, they perish. But your faith is much more precious than gold. So what's he going to do? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. God is determined to prove your faith. And so God allows the fiery trials to enter your life so that all the dross of this life that is in your heart is separated from what is eternal. That only happens through fire. Until you begin to see the value of Christ through suffering until you begin to see what is truly going to last and what is not, until you begin to see eternal versus temporal. And some of us are fighting. We all do. We fight to stay in that original state. I want to be bonded to this world and to these things and to everything that is there, and we will not let go of that process. We won't have it. So God applies greater heat, greater pressure, until eventually those things start to dissipate and you see them for what they are. And then your heart starts to turn from earthly hope to heavenly hope. And when that happens, you realize, oh, what in the world was I hoping in? It's fading. There's no joy in it. And then joy enters the picture because your eyes are on Jesus. You know that no matter what you're going through, He's got you. And Peter says that the result of this, of your faith, your focused faith is what? Praise and glory and honor when Jesus revealed. This is not speaking about us praising and glorifying and honoring Jesus Christ. Make no doubt about it, that's going to be happening. <laughs> Amen? Revelation Chapter 411, you are worthy, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being, so of course we're going to praise God. But Peter is saying that God is going to give us praise. He is going to give us glory. He's going to give us honor. And somewhere in Luke it talks about at the wedding supper of the Lamb that he is going to gird himself and serve us. What is that about? 
that he is going to bestow upon you praise and glory and honor. We see that in the parable of the good, uh, of the parable of the, uh, you know, the, the servants who are faithful, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with this, and now enter into the joy of your master. Here's your rewards. That's a reality. That's what you're facing. So trials can have, can, you can greatly rejoice because God is, is even using the difficulties in your lives to work out your salvation, to prove your faith, and it's going to result in that day when you see him face to face and you are given praise and glory and honor, and each of those things means something, but we're going to move on. And in verse 8 and 9, Peter says to them, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith. What does it produce? The salvation of your souls. Listen, these people had never seen Jesus. Have you ever seen Jesus? No, but the guy who's writing this, what? He did, and he walked with him. And Jesus was with Peter, and he was constantly talking to Peter about two issues. Oh, you have little faith, and do you love me? What are the areas that Peter failed in? Faith and love. Faith and love, constantly falling on his face. Perhaps some of you this morning are going, Lord, I've I've failed in the test you've given me. I'm failing to love you and I'm failing to trust in you. Big time. Or you feel like you're going to buckle under the pressure. You know, the trials have revealed things about you that are ungodly. The dross has come to the surface. You're going, maybe that's just who I am. Well, if anyone knew the pressure of persecution, if anyone knew the pressure of trials, if anyone knew the pressure of failure, if anyone knew the pressure of all those things, Peter knew it. And by the way, he failed. Take comfort. Praise the Lord, God doesn't just have all these shiny, perfect people that we're looking to. They all have gone through the fire. They've all failed. They've all blown it with the exception, of course, of Christ. Peter said he trusted. He said he loved. But when it came down to it, he didn't. But even though he failed, his faith didn't. I know, you're going, what? Luke twenty two thirty one. 31. Jesus says to Simon, 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 Satan has asked to sift y'all as wheat, right? Verse 32, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. You have an intercessor standing at the right hand of God praying for you that your faith may not fail. And if Christ is praying that your faith may not fail, what's going to happen to your faith? It's not going to fail. Amen. And he says, when you have turned back, this is before even Peter blew it, when you have turned back, what does he tell him to do? Strengthen your brothers. The Lord intercedes for Peter as he does for us. And here Peter is, after failing, after being restored by Jesus, he, here he is, he is what, doing what? He's strengthening his brothers and sisters. He's writing to them. And he says to them, as if Peter's saying, I've seen Jesus. 
I've walked with Jesus. I've touched him. I've handled him. I've been around him. I failed to love him, and I failed to trust him. And here you are. You haven't even seen him, and yet you love him. You, haven't see, you don't see him now, but you trust him. You believe in him. And that's the essence of being born again. You love God. You, you love him. These people lost so much. They had so much suffering, and yet, through it all, they still loved God. Do you still love God, or are you mad at Him? Do you still love God? Do you still love Him? Like Job, what? Though He what? Though He slay me. It's faith. It's love. An affection for the Lord. The tense of the word here means that they're continuously loving God. It hasn't stopped. Half page left, don't worry. Continue through the trial. (laughs) And they believed him. They continued to believe him through it all, right? They didn't stop. It was a continual belief. Love and trust in Jesus are what it means to be born again. And that's what the Lord refines. He refines that faith in Him. Their love was not rooted in this world. Their hope was not rooted in this world. It was in Christ. And they were eagerly waiting to see the one they loved and trusted. They were waiting for Him to appear. Are you waiting for the Lord to appear? Are you waiting to see Him? Are you living your life, enduring whatever it is, because you know that at any moment you could see Him face to face? And His Love, who he is, surpasses all of this. And so Peter says, because of all this, for you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Peter isn't talking about the future salvation. He's saying it's being worked out right now. You are, be delivering, you are being delivered from the power over sin in your life. You're being delivered over despair you're being delivered over anxiety and worry and, and you have lack of peace and all these things, even in the midst of all this stuff, and you have hope and you have you know, just a trust in the Lord. You have this salvation. It isn't just a future salvation. It's happening right now. You have joy. You know with certainty the refining flames of trials have made it clear that you are God's and he, and he is yours, and He loves you. And church, as you enter into the flames this week, as you go through the sufferings and the trials of all the things that you face, know that there is a purpose in it. It is the refining of your faith. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Trust Him. When you are blasphemed, when you're talked horrible to, when things happen. Take it as an opportunity. When, you, when you're feeling the urge within you to re- lash back and lash out. Anybody else got that going on? The dross has come forward. Recognize it. Say, Lord, what would you say? Get this out of me. <laughs> and that's how it happens. When the finances are tight and everything's crushing, and then you want to go fix it by means that you shouldn't. The dross has come up. When you become bitter 
when you're in, in suffering, when you're frustrated at someone else because they've brought you great pain, the dross has come up. God has answers for all these things. He is refining you. Let him. Embrace the cross of self-denial. Embrace the suffering and trust in your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the salvation, the great salvation that is ahead of us. For allowing us to go through things that we do not want to go through. For the pain and the suffering, Lord, that we've endured and will endure because we know for absolute certainty, Lord, that you will reward us. And I pray until that day that you would give us just great joy, a supernatural joy that would surpass all the things that are going on. So, Lord, I I pray for the person who is hurting physically, God, who is suffering in pain that will not go away and has not subsided and and there doesn't seem to be an answer and a hope and all the options are just unacceptable. Lord, I, I pray that you would fill their heart with faith and trust. Lord, I pray for the person who is going through a relationship that is, is extremely painful and difficult, Lord, and there just doesn't seem to be an answer and it just is constantly tearing at their soul. God, I pray that you would cause their eyes to look up for the solution, for the answer, for the hope, for the deliverance, God, and they would not delve into their own means of of solving things, but they would hope in you. I'm praying for the person who's struggling financially, Lord, as as the pressures are weighing in. Maybe bad decisions have been made, whatever, God. I'm, I'm, I'm lifting them up before your throne, and as it seems like an impossibility that things are stacked in them, I pray that they wouldn't look to their, they're as good as dead in their circumstance, Lord. I pray they just trust in your goodness and your promise to, to help and deliver and to save, Lord. Father, I, I just, I pray that our hearts would be focused on you once again, that we would embrace the suffering, that we wouldn't go through it as miserable Christians, but there would be a joy that would surpass and that it would look to others as it'd be an opportunity for others to see Christ within us, the hope of glory, Lord. You are our living hope. And so, Lord, we give you this service, Lord, and we ask that you do this deep work within our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.